Hello and welcome to Homestead Hens and Honey, a beekeeping, chicken keeping and general homesteading podcast. I'm your host, Gemma, and for this episode 47, I'm discussing The Thinking Beekeeper, A Guide to Natural Beekeeping in Top Bar Hives by Christy Hemingway. This is a wonderful how-to book with fantastic diagrams that I, as someone who just started with a top bar hive, have found immensely helpful. Now, my original plan was to review the whole book today, but as I started recording, uh, time really ticked on and I felt like I'd have to super rush through to get everything done. So today I will be doing the first half of the book, Um, through chapter five and then for my next episode we can finish things up next episode will have um, the chapter that's my favorite which has those wonderful diagrams and is a very clear guide on your first year with a top bar hive now in the last episode I explained how you my listeners could win a copy of this book. It was really great hearing from everyone and um, I'm very appreciative of all who entered and I'm happy to announce that the winner is Jenna JRB on Instagram. I have already been in touch and I will get that book out to you. So many thanks to all who entered. I hope to do something like this again in the future. Now I'm going to do some kind of quick homestead and hive updates because we've got a lot to tackle today. So for homestead updates, the last thing that I shared was having meat butt, one of my original chickens from my little flock of three. I had brought her into the house because I noticed that she wasn't doing that great. And I've had her on a course of antibiotics and painkillers and there's been some improvement but really not as much as I had hoped. So she's not as uncoordinated, she's definitely stronger but she's still unwilling to eat as much as I would like to see. Really, she is living off the dubia roaches that I've been feeding her. I found that these can often stimulate anorexic chickens into eating again, and she loves them. She's beginning three to four meals of those a day. She has just started to eat some of her regular chicken food that I've been softening for her to get a couple of extra fluids into her. And she'll eat a little bit of scrambled egg as well. But I'm not really seeing what I would like to see. Usually what I have come across with chickens is that if they're weak like this, getting them on antibiotics, getting them on painkillers, giving them some high protein food for about a week is usually all it takes to see a good turnaround to a point where they're either well enough to go right back into the flock and they get on as normal or they have declined to the point where it's time to euthanize. Meat butt is kind of just holding steady. Now something I decided to do was to put her in a special needs coop for a while to see if the fresh air and having to walk around more would help. I also did this because Squeak, my little beakless hen who's a factory farm rescue, was a little unsteady the other day and it concerned me and when I scooped her up she was even thinner than usual. Now Squeak has always been very thin, I can never really get that much weight on her despite my best efforts but even for her this was thin. 
So I decided to put Meatbutt out for a while and I brought Squeak into the house because I really only have the space for one chicken at a time. Now Squeak has been eating really well for me since I brought her inside and Meatbutt is not really doing as well outside. So I think I'm going to have to swap them around again and just accept that Squeak is a little thinner than I'd like, but because she's eating and drinking and moving around normally, it's possible that this is just how she is now. She could be reaching the end of her life. And in a similar vein, I do feel with Meatbutt that I might be fighting a losing battle here. I think it's entirely possible that she has just reached the point where her little body is ready to quit. But because she's still alert, she's still holding steady, I'm not ready to give up. I'm not ready to euthanize her, but I do feel that a decision is going to have to be made within the next five to seven days, and I will keep you updated. So other than nursing chickens in the house, I have spent most of my time when I'm not working on the podcast weeding. We're in that time of year where the weeds are going absolutely gangbusters. And because I do it all by hand, I won't spray anything on my property. It's taking a really long time, but slowly I'm getting there and I'm really pleased with the progress. My peonies have been in bloom, so I've been cutting those with fresh mint and putting those in vases all around the house. So that's been really nice. And then there's the mowing. It's that time of year where I'm out with the lawnmower at least once a week. Um, It's sort of a never-ending battle, but that's what you get when you have all this stupid grass. So hopefully if I can add a bed or patch of wildflowers or maybe get some buckwheat growing, just do something extra every year. I can work on getting rid of the lawn and putting in things that are more productive. As for hive updates, um, I'm a little confused about what's going on in the apiary right now. So overall, things are good. Um, they're building up. You know, all my colonies are building up. We're in a nectar flow. I'm seeing honey coming in and being capped, you know, all the things that I want to see. But in terms of my queenless colonies, I'm confused. So the queenless split from my overwintered colony still doesn't have a queen and I have no idea what's going on with them. They've had queen cells and they've pulled them down. They've had swarm cells and they've pulled them down. Right now they have a huge swarm cell which I decided to leave because they don't have anything else in there. Now it occurred to me that it's possible there is a virgin queen in there and I just haven't been able to spot her because virgins are so little and they're very quick and they kind of blend in with the rest of the girls. And this hive has so many bees in it. So I've tried to be more careful about looking for signs of a queen and I've yet to find one. I also feel that they don't have a queen because of the sound that they make when I'm in there. They're more reactive than my other colonies, not necessarily in an aggressive way, but they're definitely fanning more and releasing the Nazanov pheromone when I'm in there. And I've seen this before when colonies are in the process of requeening or growing a new queen. So what I did is I left that swarm cell. I do have swarm laws up. I have a 
trail cam directed onto that hive so if they do swarm hopefully I can catch it on video and get an idea of where they went which hopefully won't be too far but mainly I left it because there's no other queen cells and I didn't want to pull it down and risk them not having a queen what I did do is I gave them another frame of eggs and larva from my queen right colony and I'll be going in at the end of this week or over the weekend, depending on the weather, to see if they've drawn more queen cells or to see if it's possible that they have kept the queen that emerged from the swarm cell. So really it's just a case of watching. If this goes on much longer and there's no sign of a queen in that colony, I am going to contact local breeders and I'm going to purchase one because we're getting to that point where I need a queen in there. For my nucleus colonies, I had previously shared that nucleus number one had a queen that I spotted on the day she emerged. She was all soft and fuzzy. Well, she's gone. I don't know whether they decided they didn't like her or there was something wrong with her or whether she went on a mating flight and never came back, but they did start pulling queen cells and those queen cells are now capped, so I will be keeping an eye out for a new virgin queen in the coming week. My nucleus colony number two has a virgin queen. I have seen her in there a couple of times now. She probably went on her mating flights last week if my B math is correct so I'll be looking for eggs near the end of this week and going into next week so fingers crossed there my queen right colony is just going along as normal they're not bringing in as much nectar as I'm used to seeing with them and I'm not entirely sure why but I'm going to just leave them to it and hope for the best with the way things are going I should have a honey harvest from my queenless split so I'm not too worried about this one and I just want to make sure that they build up enough through the summer and then into the fall if we have another flow to get through winter strong. Okay so let's charge ahead and go into the book. So this book is The Thinking Beekeeper by Christy Hemingway and it's broken into two parts. Part one is called Beekeeping Basics and includes chapters one through three and part two is called When to Do What and Why and covers chapters four through nine. There is an introduction and her introduction opens with a quote by Margaret Mead. Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. The introduction opens with a short explanation of what led the author to Top Bar Hives after starting her beekeeping journey with two Langstroth hives, just as so many of us have done. To quote her, this is a how-to slash why-to book. It is the amalgam of my own personal beekeeping experiences with the writings, the experience, the research and the bee stories of many amazing people whom I've encountered since I had those first two hives. Christy Hemingway mentions the bewilderment she felt as a new beekeeper and how there were always so many varied answers to any question that she might have, with many people claiming that their way was the definitive way to keep bees. 
This book is her way of filtering through that noise and attempting to present a clear guide to managing top bar hives. I really love the last paragraph in this section, so I'm going to quote it in its entirety. For those of you who get it that honeybees are a part of a huge, important, delicate and complex natural system, and who think that you would like to do your own part for that system and for them, this book is for you. In my mind, you will always be iconoclast, rebels, renegades, in other words, thinking beekeepers. What you do matters. Don't doubt it. So we go into part one, beekeeping basics, and chapter one is called How Did We Get Here From There? And it's a succinct summary of the history of beekeeping, hive designs over time, and human-created issues that profoundly affect the health of honeybees. I've condensed this information somewhat, as it has been covered before during reviews of other books that I've covered, such as my recent Thomas Seeley series. So what is ahead is what I consider the most pertinent facts. And I've done that quite a lot through this book. So I went back and forth on whether I wanted to do really kind of a short overall summary of every chapter, or if I wanted to get more into the nitty gritty, and I fell somewhere in between. So my hope is that I have selected the most important elements for each chapter. But as with all of my book reviews, I do really encourage you to go out and get this book for yourself. As always, you can find it online in many different formats. You can purchase it as a Kindle, as an audiobook, or as a hard copy, or I guess it's a soft cover. But I also recommend checking out your local library. You will be surprised how many beekeeping books they have. So back to chapter one. Let's start with honey history. So ancient Egyptians were likely the first to maintain bees in artificial hives. Before this, people usually sought out natural hives and killed the colony of bees in order to get to all that delicious honey. Archaeologists have found sealed pots of honey that are still edible in King Tutankhamun's tomb, and that's circa 1341 to 1323 BC. In the ruins of the city of Rehor, or Rehor, 30 intact beehives circa 30 BC were discovered and they were made of straw and unbaked clay. The structure of the hives and their position in neat rows indicates a fairly advanced honey industry back in the time of the Bible. As for hive history, the first movable comb hive, which was a top bar hive, was used in Greece in 1600 AD. It was rudimentary in design, consisting of a container such as a basket, with bars placed across the opening, and these bars allowed the comb to be lifted out and inspected. Francis Harbour, however, is the individual credited with making the first beehive with movable frames in 1789 in Switzerland. This hive was called the leaf hive, as the frames were hinged at the back so that they could be opened like the pages of a book. This design by Harbour led Reverend Lorenzo Lorraine Langstroth to build his own style of hive that would allow frames to be inspected without enraging the bees. And he did just that in the mid-1850s, designing a vertical hive with self-spacing frames that used the concept of bee space. And as a quick reminder, bee space is the three-eighths of an inch of space that bees will leave when building comb, and this allows them free movement within the hive. 
So Langstroth's hive changed the history of beekeeping. And by the end of the 1800s, most North American beekeepers used some version of this style of hive. In the early 1920s, a man named Rudolf Steiner expressed concern with the level of manipulation and mechanization that was now happening in the beekeeping community, due in part to the popularity of movable frame hives such as the Langstroth. Steiner's concerns included the use of foundation, the manipulation of queen bees, preventing swarming, which is the natural reproduction of the colony, monocrop agriculture, moving hives to pollinate crops, the use of chemical fertilisers and the increasing use of pesticides. One of his lectures is particularly well known as Steiner states that the artificial queen breeding methods that were developing at the time would lead to honeybee collapse within 100 years. By 2006, we witnessed colony collapse disorder. So was Steiner therefore proven correct? Hemingway now moves on to agricultural and chemical issues. Now, this was news to me and is very interesting. World War I and World War II led to the use of chemical fertilizers and pesticides. The German Jewish chemist Fritz Haber or Haber discovered the means of synthesizing nitrogen, changing the world of agriculture as we knew it. He also developed a cyanide-based pesticide, Zyklon A, which was later adapted to Zyklon B, the very gas used by Nazis in their concentration camp gas chambers to murder undesirables. In 1971, big agriculture began to emerge. US President Richard Nixon appointed Earl Rusty Butts the Secretary of Agriculture. Butts was all about going large or going home, encouraging farmers towards monoculture and the use of chemical fertilisers and pesticides. Big Ag was presented as being more efficient and therefore more profitable. But we know now that it actually destroys the balance between soil, water, livestock, crops and pests, which are the very things needed to keep agriculture flourishing. The damaging effects of Butts' policies are still felt today. In the 1990s, a new class of pesticides emerged, systemic neonicotinoids. Instead of being sprayed onto plants, a systemic pesticide is painted on the seed and it enters the tissue of the plant as it grows. This means that the pesticide then enters the nectar and pollen of this plant, leading to it being consumed by honeybees and other pollinators. Sadly, testing methods for the danger of these pesticides are quite poor, as they don't look for delayed side effects or something called sublethal effects, which are effects that might damage pollinators but not kill them outright. Hemingway also mentions GMOs, um, genetically modified organisms, as a potential issue, as their effect on insects is not really clear at this time. We move now to colony collapse disorder. In late 2006, news broke about this bizarre and unnerving honeybee disorder. The primary symptom is rather strange and something kind of out of a horror movie. Hives will still be filled with brood and honey, but there's not a single bee to be found. 
Now, we all know as beekeepers that brood and honey are two highly crucial features of a honeybee's life, and they'll often fight to the death to protect them. So for the whole colony to abandon these two vitally important aspects of colony life is baffling and kind of spooky. What could make bees go so strongly against their natural instincts? To quote Hemingway, In the years that have elapsed since 2006, bee researchers have gradually concluded that the cause of colony collapse disorder cannot be pinned on any one single thing, one pesticide, one fungus, one virus, one parasite, but that CCD is caused by combinations of stressors breaking down the bee's natural systems. Hemingway identifies a few things we could consider for the long-term nature of agriculture, that bigger is not necessarily better, faster is not necessarily a good thing, and more is not necessarily the goal. So how do we stop CCD? To quote Hemingway, by respecting and working with the natural systems that are part of our food system and at work inside the beehive. She ends this chapter with a quote by John when one tugs at a single thing in nature, one finds it attached to the rest of the world. Chapter two is titled, It's All About the Wax, and it opens with another quote, this time by Thomas Edison. Until man duplicates a blade of grass, nature can laugh at his so-called scientific knowledge. This chapter is all about the natural beeswax comb created by bees inside their nest cavity, and it covers topics including frames, foundation, and potential chemical contamination within beeswax. So I've broken it down into some sections, and we start with honeycomb. Honeycombs consist of hexagons, which is most efficient shape found in nature because it uses the least amount of material to create it. The comb is the heart and skeleton of a honeybee colony, and that's a quote by Hemingway, which I absolutely love. And comb comes in different forms, so to speak. There's brood comb, drone comb, and honeycomb. Now, bees are cavity nesters, so they nest inside a structure and then they build their comb to fit. The next section is frames. And frames that we use in our hives also use this concept of bee space and this prevents cross combing or propolis filling of any gaps within the hive and the benefit of frames is that they allow us to easily inspect a colony without damaging the comb. The frame provides a supportive structure around the comb so we can handle it more freely and without the risk of comb damage. Many frames have foundation, which is a sheet of wax or plastic with hexagon outline printed onto it. This is meant to serve as a guide for comb building and it also ensures straight comb. Now foundation has the same size cells. There's no difference printed between worker and drone cells. Standard cell foundation has an individual cell size as 5.4 millimeters. Natural cell size is 4.9 millimeters. So why make foundation with larger cells than those found in nature? So apparently it was hoped that larger cells would lead to larger bees and this did actually prove true. Some people believe that this larger cell size has contributed to varroa mite infestation. And as a side note, 
I looked into this because it's something that I have previously given a, a goog and Scientific Beekeeping, which is one of my favorite websites, has um, a study on a small cell comb and the Honeybee Suite, which is another really wonderful website, has a link to other studies that looks at small cell size and the effect on Varroa. And from what I read, the results are really all over the map. So there's no definitive scientific evidence that larger cells have led to a great greater varroa infestation or that small cell size will hinder varroa infestation. Uh, one study found that small cell size might help. Another found that small cell size, at least in this study, seemed to contribute to more varroa. So I recommend reading as many articles as you can find. I'll link to the scientific beekeeping article and the honeybee sweet one and just sort of give it a goog, you know, follow the sources and see what you personally think, whether it's something that you'd like to have a crack at. The next section is unintended consequences of our colony manipulations. And I'm just going to list them here. So one of these is preventing swarming, which is natural reproduction. And this is done through destroying queen cells, cutting off swarm cells, and it can lead to queenlessness. Multiplying swarms, aka splitting. We do this on our schedule, not the bees. Limiting drone brood. Drones are an important part of colony health, but they're often seen as useless, especially by particularly honey-focused beekeepers. And in recent years, we are limiting drone brood or using them and then culling them as a means of varroa management. We control the sex of the bees through the Worker Cell Size Foundation, and we're changing the size of the bee with the Larger Cell Foundation. And our colonies or our hives are the wrong shape. And by this, what Hemingway means is that Langstroth frames are rectangular, whereas natural honeycomb is built in, in a rounded shape called a catenary curve. What about chemical contamination in the hive? And this is something that when I saw Christy Hemingway speak was a huge part of what led her to write this book and delve deeper into the issue. And we do know that many chemicals remain in beeswax, building up with time, and that this has contributed to mite resistance and it's believed can sicken the bees. Wax from beehives is often melted down, strained and reprocessed for use as foundation coating. And sadly, this process doesn't actually remove contamination of pesticides or miticides. One study by a team at the Mid-Atlantic Apiculture Research and Extension Consortium studied 887 wax pollen and associated hive samples and found 121 different pesticides and metabolites, which is shocking. Hemingway also asked the question of whether standardization makes sense. Since the common use of standard foundation, there's been an increase in honeybee pests and disease, including tracheal mites, varroa mites, nizema, and colony collapse disorder. To quote Hemingway, the dangers of standardization spring from disregarding nature's ways. 
Now, interchangeability has clear benefits. Being able to move frames from a strong hive to shore up a weak one, whether you want to split a hive, offering a queenless colony eggs from a queen right colony in order for them to raise a new queen, etc. These are all things that would be very difficult without standardization. But Hemingway believes that standardized wax foundation is not really a benefit and that the creation of natural beeswax comb is, to quote, the most important natural system inside the beehive. And just as a personal aside here, I do want to point out that correlation does not equal causation. And a lot about our system of agriculture and our approach to plant maintenance, such as pesticides, herbicides, introducing foreign plants into our local east ecosystem, etc. These things have all contributed to CCD. You know, it's tempting to want an easy or convenient answer. You know, it would be great if we could say standardization and plastic foundation is responsible for xyz but at this time more studies are needed chapter three basic bee biology now a lot of this i've definitely covered before so i'm just going to sort of bomb through it as quickly as i can while hopefully still being clear and this chapter opens with information about time and temperature Hemingway states that it's really helpful to learn how long the life cycle of each bee cased within the hive or each bee member is so that you have an idea of how long it takes for each to be born. When you know this, you can ascertain the answer to questions such as how long has a colony been queenless or how long until a newly emerged queen will begin to lay eggs. Knowing this bee math can save you time and a headache in the long term. And it also helps to know what temperature is needed within the brood nest, as this allows you to more effectively support your colonies. Now, the population of the hive, on average, is about 65,000 bees. And this will consist of one queen, 55,000 plus worker bees, and approximately 10,000 drones at the height of summer. Hemingway estimates drone population around 15% and I just wanted to point out that Thomas Seeley puts it at about 20% so really anywhere between 15 and 20 is a good approximation. Now our queen is the only reproductive female within the colony. Her thorax is smooth, shiny and black. Her abdomen is elongated and pointier than a worker bee's. It's also often less striped and more solid in colour and her wings do not cover her whole abdomen, so they appear to be short when looking down at her. Drones are the males in a colony. They have a large, rounded and blunt abdomen with no stinger. They have really big eyes that actually touch together in the middle and look absolutely adorable. And a drone's purpose is to mate with virgin queens from other colonies. After mating, they die. And if they've not mated by the fall, they're often, well, predominantly evicted from the hive. And I say predominantly because recently I have seen examples of really strong colonies that actually got through winter with a couple of drones. Now, the worker bees, that's the majority of them. That's 85% of the colony. And when they're younger, when they're the little newly emerged nurse bees, they're fuzzier and just sort of cuter to look at. 
Now their abdomen and their wings are the same length. So their wings cover their abdomen and their abdomen is striped usually, but it's not uncommon to see those with solid black abdomens. Their eyes are small, round and separate from each other, not touching like the drones. So let's look at some bee math. It's important to know that the queen, worker bees and drones all spend 3.5 days as an egg. The queen then spends 4.5 days as a larva and eight days as a capped pupa. So this is a total of 16 days until emergence. A worker spends 5.5 days as a larva and 11 days as a capped pupa, which is a total of 20 days, but it's common for it to be 20 to 21 days until emergence. A drone spends 6.5 days as a larva and 14 days as a capped pupa, a total of 24 days until emergence. So they take the longest to emerge. And I'm going to have this handy little... Um, Oh, what's it called? Table. A handy little table from the book. I'll take a picture of it and I'll put it on my website because it's so much easier to see this information just sort of laid out in columns. Here we discuss uh, some aspects of queens, such as queen marking. And this is the practice of applying a small dot of paint to a queen's thorax to help identify her and the year she was born. Although if you're me, you accidentally coat her thorax and her wings and really upset her and then worry that you've killed her and then find out that she's fine. And every time you see her feel terrible guilt. <laughs> So this colour ID chart helps us know when the queen was born or when she emerged. So the colour white is for years ending in one or six, yellow for years ending in two or seven, red for three or eight, green four or nine and blue five or zero. And again, there's a picture of this. Um, it's a nice little table that I'll put on the website. So when I painted last year's queen with a white dot, that was wrong. Last year's queens were blue and I just didn't think of that, honestly. So whoops, but I have my notes so I know when she was born. And there's a little section here about queen clipping, which I haven't heard much about, but it's just where you cut the queen's wing so she can't fly. And it's used in an attempt to prevent swarming. And probably the reason I haven't heard a huge amount about it, I think I just kind of dismissed it, is because often swarming will happen anyway. And what happens is that the queen just gets left behind because she can't fly. And it's sort of an aborted swarm attempt. So I guess it works, but sometimes what will happen instead is that the swarm will then raise new queens and leave with one of the newly emerged queens. And speaking of newly emerged queens, can two queens exist in the same colony? Hemingway claims that this happens actually a lot more than we might think, in part because we stop looking for a queen when we have found one, one being the key word. And this is a really interesting theory to me because on Instagram, I follow a wonderful, well, I follow a lot of wonderful beekeeping accounts. And one of them found, I believe it was two separate colonies during swarm season, she had two different queens in there who by all appearances were happily working side by side. And so it's really interesting to me that Hemingway has this theory and it's going to make me be a lot more careful when looking for queens 
during this time of year when swarming is uh, booming. Now, Hemingway estimates that as many as 15 to 20% of colonies have two queens for a short period of time during the swarm season, and this is based on her experiences. And we do know that not all queens will fight to the death. As we learned in Thomas Seeley's The Lives of Bees, workers will sometimes keep the first virgin queen to emerge away from the other queen cells so that they can time their release for a series of after swarms, where part of the population leaves with a newly emerged queen after the primary swarm with the mother queen has already left. Once a queen has emerged, she needs to go on her mating flights. And a queen bee always mates in flight, never inside the hive. On these flights, she receives and stores all the sperm she will ever need for the rest of her life. The more drones she mates with, the stronger her pheromones, which Hemingway rather pithily calls being more bee-loved. And 10 to 20 drones is fairly common, but it could be as many as 40. Now, I mentioned swarming, and this is the colony's natural form of reproduction. This is a completely natural process in a honeybee colony's life. Swarm cells are made at the bottom of the comb or frame, and the queen lays eggs in them. So she is an active participant in this process. The mother queen then leaves with 50 plus percent of the colony. And after she's gone, virgin queens start to emerge. And the first might kill her sisters in the cell, or she'll be kept away from them by the workers. The virgin queen that remains in the hive is the one that inherits it. Now, swarming is different from supersedure, and this is when bees replace their queen. Unlike swarm cells, bees are pulled on the centre of the comb or frame as the worker bees choose which eggs to feed up as queens. And this means the queen is not an active participant in this process as she is with swarming. So this is not a colony reproduction event. Eventually, the colony will kill or remove the queen and their reasons for doing so are mostly their own. We have, well, researchers and beekeepers assume that there's something wrong with the queen that the bees can sense. It might be that she's just reaching the end of her reproductive life and she's not as productive as she used to be when it comes to producing eggs. There's also emergency queen replacements and this is when something completely unforeseen happens and the queen's gone and the colony needs a new queen as soon as possible. Now if the colony has plenty of young larvae to choose from they can begin raising new queens as they would with a supersedure. But if this cannot be done due to lack of appropriately aged larva, the queen pheromone and the brood pheromone will eventually lower to the point that a worker might begin to lay. So what does it mean when we talk about a laying worker? Worker bees are genetically female and they do have ovaries, but they've never mated. And so they're not capable of producing fertile eggs, which means they cannot produce other worker bees. All they can produce are unfertile, I'm sorry, infertile, I can't believe I made that mistake, infertile eggs that produce drones, the males. And eventually this means that in a laying worker situation, the number of drones will exceed the number of workers, which Hemingway refers to as a colony of lost boys, which is really charming and super sad. Now, brood pheromone helps prevent laying workers 
just as queen pheromones do. And I'm just highlighting that again because it means really that if you are in a situation with a colony where there is no queen, as long as you can keep supplying them frames of brood or eggs from another queen right colony, you are preventing one of those workers ovaries from kicking into gear and for her to produce eggs. Now, personally, I think of drones as the sperm of the colony. You know, if we imagine a honeybee colony as an entire organism, then I think of the drones as the sperm. And so to me, this process of laying workers, producing all these drones, all this sperm, is akin to the colony throwing a ton of sperm or genetic material out into the world in the hopes that some of those males will successfully reproduce, allowing the genetics of the colony to live on, which is arguably the reason for reproduction, the instinct that every living creature has to reproduce. So again, one big benefit of interchangeable standardized hive parts is being able to give a queenless colony a frame of eggs from which to raise queens. And now we return to temperature. So the brood nest is maintained at around 93 degrees Fahrenheit. And when bees cluster over winter and they don't have brood, they maintain the temperature at about 55 Fahrenheit. Now this is news to me. The temperature needed around an area where new wax is being built is 91 degrees Fahrenheit. Bees won't fly when temps are below 48 degrees Fahrenheit usually and below 46 degrees, bees become sluggish, even inert, entering a chill torpor state. Location and climate. Know your local climate. So a southeastern beekeeper or a beekeeper living in the southeast has different challenges than one living in the northeast. And climate determines the growing season and thus bee food sources. There's also different pests that thrive in different climates. So hive management is going to be different depending on your area. Heavenway includes a really, really little short section on pollination here, and she basically answers the question, why are honeybees such good pollinators? And the reason why is that honeybees focus on one type of plant for each foraging trip. For instance, a forager will visit dandelion after dandelion after dandelion, shedding pollen and therefore pollinating these flowers as they go. Now we're going to talk about bee stings. Honeybees as a whole are not aggressive and I know there are exceptions such as the African honeybee and Africanized bees but generally speaking you know our little western honeybee are not aggressive and it's important to know that only the female bees the workers and the queens can actually sting drones can't because they don't have a stinger. Now, a queen can sting more than once, but usually only when eliminating rival queens. And I have actually yet to hear of any beekeeper being stung by a queen. If you have been or you know someone, please drop me a line because I'm always interested to hear whether that's ever happened. For worker bees, stinging is going to lead to their death. And the reason why is that their stingers are barbed and it gets hooked into your skin. So when they fly away or you brush them off, the stinger remains in your skin and they basically get eviscerated. It, It pulls their guts out. 
And this basically means that stinging is expensive and they're not going to do it lightly. It is a form of colony defense. And there are some situations that can increase a colony's defensiveness and therefore increase the chance of stinging. A nectar dearth when food is scarce. So in the fall, particularly last year, late summer going into early fall, it was a nightmare here because of the nectar dearth. My bees were aggressive and they were robbing from each other and I wasn't enjoying it at all. They might also be aggressive shoring up the honey reserves in late fall going into winter and things like queenlessness can also make them aggressive. Of course, genetics play a role in aggression and defensiveness and it's why it's recommended that if you have an aggressive colony, you re-queen as the queen is the one who supplies the genetics for all of the inhabitants of the hive. Now, it's commonly believed that light clothing and little to no perfume can help prevent being stung. I'm not really sure how true this is, but, you know, why risk it? Our bee suits usually come in light colours, so stick with that and just don't spritz on perfume before you go out. As for sting reactions, everyone will react in some way to a bee sting, but this doesn't mean you're allergic. Local reaction is completely normal and it includes pain, redness, swelling and itching. And these symptoms can last for several days. And as I said, they're a totally normal response to bee venom. What we're worried about and what you should always be mindful of is a systemic reaction. Um, In the case of this, it's called anaphylaxis and it's a severe whole body response. It can happen incredibly quickly, often within seconds and is dangerous, potentially life-threatening. You can use an EpiPen at the scene to help. And this is the most crucial part. If you ever need to use an EpiPen, you must take the affected individual to emergency medical treatment as soon as possible. Think of the EpiPen as a stopgap measure for additional treatment. Now, one of the things that's a little unnerving is that reactions to bee stings can change over time. So some people will build a resistance. I am always in awe of my beekeeping teachers who just brush off bee stings like nothing happened and aren't a massive swollen mess afterwards. But sadly, someone who has never had a problem with bee sting bee stings, excuse me, might one day experience an anaphylactic reaction with no prior history. So whenever you're with your hives, just be careful and be vigilant. Hemingway also recommends letting someone know when you plan to work your hives if you're all alone so that someone knows where and when they can look for you should you not come back within a certain period of time. And a quick note from Hemingway about dried bee venom occasionally people can actually react to this and this often accumulates on bee suits if you've been stung a lot by bees so it's recommended that you wash your protective gear regularly and kind of keep it away from other members of your household when in use. The end chapter um, quote is quite well chosen here it's by Joseph Jobert and it states when you go in search of honey you must expect to be stung by bees. We're now on to part two of this book, When to Do What and Why. And chapter four is titled Your Top Bar Hive. I covered a good chunk of this chapter in my last episode. So I'm just going to hit the key points here. 
And to start, it's important to know that top bar hives are not a new hive design, but they did fall out of favour as vertical square box hives began to dominate the market. There are usually two camps of top bar hive beekeepers, those who see this style of hive as a long-standing tradition that they are proud to continue and support, and those who are looking for a different management style and see top bar hives as a more sustainable method of beekeeping. So what are the important elements of top bar hives? Number one, the cavity. This should be large enough to house the colony and enough honey stores for the winter in your area or climate. And Hemingway believes that 30 bars seems to do very well for most of North America. Number two, the top bars themselves. They must be removable for inspection. They work best with a comb guide. They're great if they're designed not to squash bees and they should be easy to lift in and out. In general, most top bars are designed for brood comb, which has a width of one and a quarter to one and three eighths of an inch. So spaces are recommended for the bars where the bees start to draw out honeycomb. This basically just makes them thick enough that the honeycomb can be built into this additional space. Number three, the entrance. Now your options are a side or end entrance, a center entrance or a center side entrance. And there doesn't appear to be any preference when it comes to the bees, but the location of the entrance changes our management style. So the benefit of a side entrance hive or an end entrance is that the bees will always grow in one direction. They start on the far side of the hive and they build comb away from there. With a centre entrance hive, the beekeeper has to perform a mid-season shift where they move the colony from the centre to the far left side, allowing the bees to continue their one directional growth toward the right. A benefit of starting a colony at the centre is that there's space on either side of them, which acts as additional insulation during cool or particularly hot weather. Number four, the roof. This protects the top of the bars from the elements as well as predators. There are a lot of different styles to choose from, but Hemingway prefers the gable roof as it readily sheds rain in the snow and creates a space above the bars where you can store additional top bars or place insulation for winter. Number five, landing boards. And these are usually only used on end entrance hives. And the only real difference with this is the way that the bees are entering the hive. So you can watch them come in for a landing before walking into the hive proper when there is a landing board. But conversely, Hemingway points out that it's just as fun to watch the bees hover before a centre entrance hole before darting quickly inside. Number six, an observation window. This is not a requirement, but it is super fun. It offers an additional benefit of seeing the inner work of the colony without having to lift any bars out and therefore disturbing them. Any observation window should have a shutter or some kind of cover as too much light inside the hive will stress the bees and potentially cause them to abscond. Some other features to consider. Top bar hives are foundationless, allowing the bees to build the type of comb, worker, drone or honey, where and when they need it. By avoiding the use of foundation in the hive, you're also potentially avoiding contamination of the beeswax used to prep foundation. 
Now on a frame with foundation, bees start to build the comb from the center and work outwards, which is not how they build natural comb. That's always started from the top down. There's the issue of vertical versus horizontal in terms of hive style. So in a Langstroth style hive, bees build upwards, but in a top bar, they build horizontally. And to the bees, it doesn't really seem to matter which way they grow and expand. Honeybee colonies are regularly found building their nests in really unusual, even bizarre places. As cavity nesters, they build comb to fill whatever space they've previously identified as a good nest site. It's interesting to note that in a vertical space such as a tree, bees still build from the top down, not upwards. And you can also consider things like movement of air and moisture buildup in the hive. In a Langstroth hive, air moves up, warms as it passes the bees, and then condenses on the lid above the clustered bees, which can cause a potentially fatal issue in winter. If that cold water starts to drip down on that cluster of bees, it can kill them real fast. In a top bar hive, there's no space above the bees where moisture can build. The bars form a tight seal directly above the comb where the bees cluster. Now, moisture can accumulate on the sides of the hive, especially on the observation window, but this might not altogether be a bad thing, as winter bees do still need water to drink. And you might recall that Thomas Seeley discussed the buildup of condensation on the propolis sealed cavity of wild honeybee nests. Hemingway ends this chapter with a brief note on warre hives. So warre hives were developed by Abbe Emily Warre, 1867 to 1951, and is sometimes called the people's hive. This is a vertical top bar hive, which allows the bees to build natural comb. The management of it has the beekeeper placing additional boxes or supers under the primary box, not above like with a Langstroth. So this allows the bees to build from the top down, but it also means that there's quite a bit of heavy lifting involved. Often the bars of this style of hive are anchored in place, which means they're not movable. That makes this a fixed bar hive. And this also means that inspections are impossible. And this could pose a problem in states where the law dictates that all hives must be capable of inspection in order for you to keep bees legally. Hemingway basically expresses her lack of experience in this area, but she wanted to mention worry hives or worry hives as they're often grouped with top bar hives as a style of alternative hive styles. She recommends doing as much reading about this kind of hive as possible and then reaching out to beekeepers who have experience with it if this is something that you're interested in. And now we're on to chapter five called On Getting Started With Your Own Top Bar Hive. And this is going to be the last chapter that I cover today. And it opens with options for you, how to get started. And one tried and true way is doing it yourself, DIY. Many people build their own top bar hive and there are a plethora of plans online and in various books for you to consider. When doing it yourself, Hemingway does have some recommendations. She recommends that you avoid plexiglass for the observation window as it warps over time and off gases. 
Don't use laminated wood. It often contains formaldehyde and the glue used for it off gases. And don't use silicon cork. It's toxic and it also off gases. And as a side note, what does it mean when we say something off gases? And this is basically when a product releases chemicals over time as a gas. You can also look at DIY kits. So I mentioned in my previous episode that Hemingway offers these on her website. One is the um, instruction plans that you would need to basically do everything yourself, cut the wood, source the hardware, put it all together. And then the other is a kit with the instructions and all the hardware you would need. So all you need to do is cut the wood yourself and supply the wood, obviously. So she recommends that if you're looking at any kind of DIY kit, be sure to look at reviews, check out the kind of wood and the fasteners that are recommended and whether the maker of those kits has actually used them themselves and what their experiences have been. Although an affordable kit does not mean it's lacking in quality, Hemingway does caution against using kits that seem to be real cheap, almost too cheap to be true. She cautions that saving money in the short term could mean paying for it in the long term. And then you have complete kits, which are fully made top bar hives. They're just unassembled. So you have to assemble it, which is the kind of hive that I got and I reviewed in my previous episode. And at one point, Hemingway used to sell these. Right now, she currently isn't. And on this section, again, she just says, you know, don't be super cheap. If you find one for 50 bucks, really ask questions about, you know, how it was made and the wood used. And I did a little Googling and I found out that some big and small beekeeping companies do offer these kind of complete unassembled top bar hive kits so you can do your homework Um, I'm going to link to one that Man Lake sells that's one of the biggest suppliers of beekeeping equipment they have a unassembled full top bar hive kit for $250 and it ships free within the continental US so I will link to that in my episode description and on the website and then if you want to support smaller independent makers, you can go on Etsy, which is one of my favorite places to shop. And to give you an idea, I found that hives there ranged in price from about $105 up to $700 with very different shipping costs. So some shipping costs were around $100, others were offering free shipping. And you can also reach out to your beekeeping community in your local area, see if anyone has access to a wood shop or does any of this kind of building themselves and whether they would be able to make a hive for you. Now, as for bees, how do you get the bees for the hive? You can get a package and make sure you order in advance here. So November is not necessarily too early to start looking. And usually the purchasing period runs between November and February before things get sold out. You could catch a swarm. Or if you already have a top bar hive or know someone who does, you could get a split where you split one hive into two. Or you could start with a nucleus colony. And there are top bar hive keepers who make tiny, adorable top bar hive nukes. And you could ask your local club for guidance in this area. There's also something called a hack and slash nuke, which is where you take a regular Langstroth style nucleus colony and you cut the frames with the comb on it to fit your top bar hive. But this isn't recommended by Hemingway. It's 
very time intensive and it's very destructive. Or you could do something like relocating bees from a structure, aka a bee removal. But this is extremely challenging and it's not recommended for a beginner. Right now, you know, I'm in my third year of beekeeping. You couldn't pay me to take the lead on a bee removal. I would love to watch one and help someone else, but I am not doing that myself. Then we're on to equipment and supplies. So you need a top bar hive, obviously. You want it to be all ready before the bees come home. Consider the location of placement. Sunny areas um, are best if you have very cold winters and shaded places are better for those who go through extremely hot summers. Consider direction. Um, This affects where the wind comes in. And also it's usually recommended that a hive front should face south or southeast whenever possible. What's critically important with the top bar hive is that it is level. This ensures good comb building because the bees are relying on gravity. Also consider a feeder, whether it's going to be placed outside the hive for the end entrance style or inside for a centre side or a centre entrance hive. And then just make sure that the feeder isn't leaking in any way before you actually place it in the hive. Then, of course, you need protective gear, at minimum a veil or you might want to go with a jacket or a full suit. I like the ventilated ones. And then you have some options for gloves. So you can go with the full heavy beekeepers leather gloves or goatskin leather is very popular. You can use rubber washing up gloves or you can use nitrile or latex gloves that won't protect you from stings, but do increase your dexterity and stop your fingers from getting covered in propolis. And most critically, you need a journal or some kind of logbook. This is very, very useful. I cannot stress enough how much I love my bee journal. It's so useful to flip through, to remind myself of what's happened previously, what I was looking at in previous years, what's been in bloom before and what's in bloom now and so on. In terms of feeding a new colony, you can give them sugar syrup. It's a one-to-one ratio of sugar and water. This is fed in the spring. And don't feed it unless night temperatures are reliably above 50 degrees Fahrenheit. Think of feeding a new colony as a stopgap measure. It's just a way to give them a boost and get them started. To quote Hemingway, don't get so caught up on being all natural that you don't feed and wind up starving your bees. In terms of making sugar syrup, Hemingway offers kind of a handy recipe here. So when you're making a spring syrup, which is again, one, one sugar and water, you can take five pints or 10 cups of hot water and five pounds of white sugar. And this will make just a little more than four quarts of syrup. The full ratio is two to one sugar to water. So that's five pints or 10 cups of hot water and 10 pounds of sugar. And it's very important to remember never to boil the water with the sugar added. Always boil the water first, remove it from the heat and then stir in the sugar until it dissolves. Boiling the water with the sugar will caramelize the sugar and it creates tiny solids that the bees cannot digest, which causes them diarrhea. Sugar syrup can also be made using a tea tonic base instead of plain water. And you can also add a few drops of lemongrass oil. And in the book, 
Hemingway actually shares a tea tonic recipe and I didn't copy the whole thing down but it's basically a big mix of different kinds of natural herbs with a couple of drops of essential oil and you use that instead of hot water when you make your sugar syrup. Hemingway cautions that you should avoid corn syrup as the average ear of US corn can contain around three different systemic insecticides and so if you use that you're increasing the risk of your bees eating one of those insecticides. Now a big question is often asked why can't I feed honey to my bees and you can but the crucial aspect is that you feed honey from the hive back to the hive because if you feed honey from other hives you're potentially harming your colonies. And one good example of this is American fowl brood. Now, American fowl brood spores can be found in honey. And so if you don't do prophylactic treatments of your hives, which Hemingway doesn't recommend, then you're potentially introducing American fowl brood into what was previously a healthy colony. So again, if you take honey from a hive and you store it, you can feed it back to that hive. Otherwise, if you don't have anything to feed your bees, stick to plain white sugar and hot water to make a syrup. And this chapter then ends with preparing the hive, but I covered this in detail in my previous episode, so I'm not going to restate it here. I'll just say that the author recommends using the front center entrance for top bar hives, and most of the management information she shares is geared towards this method, and it's worth keeping in mind when she's talking about things like the comb building direction and the process of adding additional frames. To hear in detail how she recommends starting a front center entrance top bar hive please listen to my previous episode and this is where I'm going to end it today I actually was hoping to cover the whole book but I'm already over an hour in and there's a lot more to cover chapter six which is where I will start next episode is my very favorite chapter it contains detailed instruction with diagrams to help you learn how to inspect your hive and what to expect during the colony's first year and it really focuses on the why of it all as well so she's not just telling you what to do she's really helping you understand why you should do these things at the time she recommends And so that's it for this week. I really do hope that you're enjoying this. It's a super good book. As I said, I did waffle about just really quickly summarizing it to fit this into one episode, but I feel like what she has to share is worth giving to you all now as best as I can. And I've already learned new things. I really like her insights. I feel that she has a lot to give the beekeeping community. And so I really want to do this book justice. I hope that wherever you are, you're really enjoying your bees right now or your garden, chickens, geese, whatever it is that you're doing. I hope it's bringing you joy. I know this is an extremely busy time of year for those of us who work with the garden or with animals but I hope you remember to take a little time for you do some self-care you know relax enjoy the good weather if you are currently experiencing it and I hope you are enjoy what you've built enjoy the different 
critters that live all around you and really enjoy your bees. I love sitting out on my deck and just watching those little golden bodies flying back and forth in the sunlight. It's one of my favorite sights and I hope I never ever get tired of it. I am going to do a really quick personal update. So for anyone who is not interested in that or who doesn't want to hear about sort of mental health stuff, now is the time to sign off. I thank you so much for listening and I hope that you join me again in two weeks. If you've stuck around this far, you want to hear me blather about my personal news. So real quick, I'm really excited because I was able to get in contact with an importer from Europe for fresh genetic lines for my breeding business, my reptile breeding business. So watch this space. Those babies should be coming in the next month or so. And I'm real excited about it. And as for personal news, I'm still going through a medication adjustment. We increased my anti-anxiety medication because the critical thoughts and the kind of go, 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 go feeling came back. So I boosted that medication a little bit when I spoke to my psychiatrist. And I'm also currently in the process of weaning off my Lexapro antidepressant and weaning, weaning or adjusting onto Prozac, which we're hoping will give me a bit more of a boost. And I will say, because I'm in that in-between stage, so I take my anti-anxiety, which is Buspar in the morning with a low dose of Prozac. And then in the evening with my evening dose of Buspar, I take my Lexapro. So I'm basically on two antidepressants right now. And I will say that I have noticed, it's only been a couple of days, but I seem to have more energy. I've been waking up earlier. I am able to start work sooner than before. I seem a bit more focused. And I don't expect that to last forever because the plan is to not be on two antidepressants, obviously, but it's kind of nice. And I think I might start getting up at five so I can get to swim in the limited morning hours because it's been real hard to get down there in the afternoon between my husband's work, his need for the car, and then things like traffic and school hours and all that kind of stuff. So if this energy lasts, maybe I'll start waking up at five in the morning and getting that swim out of the way before my day begins. That would be really nice. If I can fit more into my day, I will be a very, very happy little camper. And that's it. So, you know, wish me well, if you don't mind. I'm still a little all over the place some days, a little up and down, but I'm sort of chugging onwards. So it's not, it's not too bad. (laughs) Uh, We've had some nice weather, so I'm really enjoying that. And I hope wherever you are that you're doing well. Always remember to reach out to people that you love and trust if you ever need help. You are definitely not alone in this. If you're struggling with depression or anxiety or any other kind of mental or physical illness, you're not alone. There are people who are experiencing similar and who understand and there are people who will help you. So please always remember that. And that's it. I don't want to go on for too long. This is already a pretty lengthy episode. So I'll just tell you as always, hug your hands and then wash your hands. Thanks so much for listening. Take care. Bye-bye.